I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's lecture. Today's lecture is the inaugural lecture in the Winger Distinguished Lecture Series at the LSE. The series aims to promote greater understanding of America's role in the world economy through the analysis of international trade, law, and institutions. The series is made possible by the generosity of the Henry and Consuelo Wenger Foundation. And we are delighted to have members of the family with us today on the platform, one of whom, Wellesley Wenger Baum Parker, is an LSE alumna who received her MSc in the IR department at the, uh, a few years back. It's great to have you, Caprice, and Mark with us today for this special event. Thank you for joining us. I also wanna welcome members of the Maryam Forum who are showcasing this event as part of their conference. The Maryam Forum is a collaborative initiative to promote transformative leadership. Launched by the LSE School of Public Policy, the forum brings together academics, students, policymakers, and members of the business community. We're very happy to have all of you here today to help us kick off the, the Winger series. And now please allow me to introduce our distinguished speaker and discussant, Professor Danny Roderick and Professor Sarah Holbo. Danny is the Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He is president-elect of the International Economics Association and co-director of uh, Economics for Inclusive Prosperity and the recipient of numerous awards, including the Albert O. Hirschman Prize uh, of the Social Science Research uh, Council and the Princess of Asturias Award uh, for Social Sciences. The author of many books, edited volumes in journal articles and essays. His most recent book is entitled Straight Talk on Trade, Ideas for a Sane World Economy. There's also an LSE connection here. Danny was the Centennial Professor of Economics at LSE between 2013 and 2016. Danny, welcome back, so to speak. We're also very fortunate to have Professor Sarah Holbolt on the platform today to help us kick off what I know will be a very lively discussion. Professor Holbolt holds the Sutherland Chair in European Institutions and is Professor of Government uh, at LSE. Her research and teaching interests lie in the fields of political behavior, public opinion, and comparative politics. The author of five books and dozens of scholarly articles, her most recent monograph is Political Entrepreneurs, The Rise of Challenge Parties in Europe with Catherine de Vries, also with Princeton. Sarah comments frequently on various media outlets about Brexit, public opinion, and European and EU politics. A few words about the format. Danny's going to get us started with 30 or so, a 30 or so minute presentation. We'll then hand things over to Sarah, who will offer some comments on the presentation and put a few questions to Danny. We'll then uh, give you a chance. We'll open it up to all of you. We have left plenty of time for questions. So, you know, please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. I'll do my level best to put as many of them as possible to Danny and Sarah during the discussion period. 
Now, normally at this point in the opening, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give our speakers one of those warm LSE welcomes, but that of course is not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period. Danny, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you with us and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Peter. It's, it's always an honor and pleasure to be um, uh, speaking uh, at LSE. Um, and the, the honor is, is doubled uh, this time around um, uh, on the occasion of uh, this uh, first of a, of a series of um, Wenger uh, Distinguished um, uh, Lectures. So I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged and honored to be, to be doing this. Uh, a, a special word of thanks in advance to my uh, discussant, uh, um, Sarah Hobolt, um, who has the, uh, the, 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 the challenge of, of uh, reacting um, uh, immediately to my comments. Often I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say until I say them. So, that's, uh, so this, uh, this is um, um, uh, a, uh, I, I appreciate uh, the, um, the feedback and the criticism and, and the discussion, and I look forward to it. Um, so the, um, let me share my uh, screen. Um, so that um, I can make um, the, the key points um, oops, that um, I want to make. Um, and uh, as is the case with, uh, with uh, most economists, I feel quite naked without my uh, sort of presentation. <laughs> so um, let, me, let me get this uh, to work. Okay, um, my title is Why Does uh, Globalization Fuel Populism and, and What Can We Do About It? So the talk is really half and half, um, sort of the positive uh, political economy of understanding the roots of populism, and the other half is really much more normative, uh, policy-oriented about some of my ideas about how to address um, uh, the issues that the, the positive uh, political economy highlights. Um, so. Uh, I want to um, talk about um, hyperglobalization um, as, a, as an advanced stage of globalization that presents a series of, of challenges, um, which I believe um, are at the root of, uh, it's not the only thing, but it's an important root um, of, uh, of um, uh, populism, particularly right-wing populism. I want to put this explanation um, in the context of the broader discussion uh, about the the, uh, the rise of populism, in particular, uh, the discussion whether the roots are economics or more based on culture, um, and 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 give you my take on that literature. Um, then uh, then I want to turn on to sort of what this tells us about uh, the kinds of policies we ought to be looking for, and there I'm going to highlight as the key issue that we must address um, as uh, an issue um, in uh, rooted in labor markets, in particular, the polarization in labor markets. Um, and, and the fact that our labor markets are, um, uh, are, are uh, becoming worse and worse at generating good middle-class uh, jobs. And then I wanna spend uh, whatever time remains and maybe in the discussion, uh, we can go uh, further into those areas. Um, some, some, some key ideas about um, how our, con our, our conception of the welfare state, uh, which has been very successful, but which has eroded 
and is not really up to the challenge of uh, creating good jobs, how our conception of the welfare state has to be uh, augmented uh, with um, a kind of a, a good jobs strategy. Okay? So that's, um, that's uh, where uh, I'm going. Um, that's, that's the plan. Let me begin with a little bit of history, American history, um, and uh, go back in some sense to the roots of populism. And you know, populism is rooted essentially um, in sort of late 19th century, uh, probably you know, the earliest um, self-consciously populist political movement um, in history is that of the, uh, the People's Party in the United States, uh, which in the late 19th century was rooted in the, uh, in the grievances of um, the um, farmers uh, in the southern and western parts of the country. Um, and, and so it was this, this populism was very much a kind of an agrarian uh, um, and led uh, a backlash against um, the prevailing economic policies of the day, in particular the gold standard, the, the late 19th century model of globalization. So it's interesting that this this first and earliest uh, wave of globalization also targeted uh, globalization, the gold standard, and um, the, 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 the link is made very clear here by this very famous um, uh, speech by William Jennings Bryan, who was the, um, uh, the populist um, uh, um, candidate for presidency in 1896, where in the Democrats' uh, um, National Congress, he uttered this famous quote, uh, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. That is, you're not going to, you should not sacrifice uh, the interests of ordinary people uh, to the requirements of the world economy as represented by the rules of the gold standard. Of course, uh, you know, the, the gold standard was upheld by financial and, and um, industrial circles in New York City and the northeastern parts of the country. So that was the divide then uh, between the agrarian interests and the the Northeastern financial um, uh, elite. So in many ways, actually very similar uh, to today, if you replace um, sort of agriculture um, with, um, you know, small town or, or, or um, sort of the industrializing regions of, um, of the United States. So why does um, hyperglobalization or why does globalization um, create um, a kind of a backlash that can lend itself to, this, um, uh, to, this, to these populist movements? I think there are essentially three tensions that are inherent uh, in an open economy, which are aggravated uh, in the, uh, during the advanced stages of um, globalization. I think one of those tensions um, is essentially uh, fundamentally economic um, and that in economic theory, we teach essentially two different stories uh, that in some senses are in conflict with each other. The story that, um, uh, that is probably better known, uh, that we perhaps take more pride in, is Adam's, Adam Smith's story about specialization, uh, the gains from specialization, um, which in, in some form is extended, was extended by David Ricardo to the theory of comparative advantage, the gains from specialization, the gains from comparative advantage. But there is a, a, an alternative story, uh, perhaps that we teach less, but we should also teach more, uh, the story about uh, the gains from uh, uh, diversification, the gains from productive diversification, in particular, a proactive role of the government uh, to, um, to 
promote uh, new infant industries, sometimes against the forces of, of international specialization, international trade. And that tradition goes back to, of course, Alexander Hamilton in the United States and Friedrich List in, in, um, in, in, in Germany um, and, and, and so forth. But these are two stories uh, that, that, that if you push too far in the direction of uh, trying to get the gains from trade, uh, you might lose uh, on account of uh, the uh, benefits of, of um, uh, diversifying and, and, and put, putting in, into motion sort of the dynamic benefits of uh, uh, moving into more productive areas. And, and the countries that have done the best in globalization are those that have actually, like China, have, uh, have, have had a globalization strategy that is underpinned uh, by uh, domestic uh, industrialization strategies or strategies of productive diversification. That's the strictly economic story. There is a, a story that more, if you will, about fairness or about distributive justice. Uh, and the key logic there is also rooted in the economics of the open economy, which is that uh, the redistributive effects of trade are the flip side of the coin from the gains from trade. That is to say, you cannot have the gains from trade without having um, significant redistribution taking place. And that's sort of rooted in the, in the Stolper's famous Stolper-Samuelson theorem um, and its various extensions is actually a fairly general argument uh, that really the, the benefits of specialization come at uh, a significant amount of redistribution taking place. It's important to note that this redistribution is not relative gains versus relative losses, but in fact, it's absolute losses. And at the heart of this theory is that there's going to be some regions, some people, some groups that will be absolutely worse off as these aggregate gains are, um, are, are being reaped. And then I think most broadly at the level of politics and accountability, I think there is this trade-off uh, between the gains, reaping the gains from trade and therefore reducing barriers to international trade and international capital flows versus the gains from maintaining, uh, each country maintaining its own regulations, its own tax systems, its own fiscal policies um, that might diverge from those of its um, uh, partners. Um, and the problem here is that gains from trade are created through arbitrage but arbitrage in turn undermines regulatory diversity. So if you push too hard, too fast and too hard uh, in terms of, of uh, on, the, on the arbitrage front, you're going to be undermining the possibilities of regulatory diversity. Therefore, the ability of national governments to be responsive to their local domestic uh, support base or domestic economy. And that I think was at the heart of what the uh, uh, the, the early populists um, in the late 19th century uh, were, um, were up in arms about um, that, that domestic credit policies were um, essentially geared towards maintaining the interest of free capital mobility and a fixed parity to gold. In other words, the interest of the gold standard and the world economy, as opposed to um, sort of a, a kind of a more easy credit, low interest rate policy that would have uh, been more responsive uh, to the needs of, um, of farmers who were otherwise being squeezed by high real interest rates. Okay, now, so I think fundamentally, this is a lot of ideas packed into one slide, but I think um, this is why I think that globalization creates tensions, uh, which in turn are reflected in a kind of a backlash. Um, now, I want to let me embed this in sort of how 
you know, we discuss uh, populism. Um, and I think from, if, if I wanted to move into um, sort of the, the world of positive political economy, um, I think all political economy models are essentially based on some version of this, that we want to explain electoral outcomes, political outcomes, that is who votes for who, and why is it that populist parties uh, might get more, more support. And you know, this is a, an equilibrium outcome um, that is the joint product of both a kind of a demand side, and as is, you know, what are individuals' policy preferences, the voters, um, the stakeholders, as well as the supply side of politics. And that's really, you know, uh, where, what do parties stand for? What are their ideologies? Um, who runs for office? And that's all sort of the supply side. And I think our, our uh, essential debate uh, today uh, about the roots of pop, uh, um, populism are essentially about um, sort of the argument uh, whether these roots are originate from an economic theory of dislocation, uh, inequality, labor market problems, jobs problems, uh, economic insecurity and anxiety on the other hand, versus um, essentially uh, <clears throat> matters of culture, um, attitudes towards um, the other, um, racial divides, um, ethnic religious divides, uh, attitudes towards immigrants, um, and, and so forth. And there's a there's an ongoing uh, um, uh, um, sort of um, debate on what the rules, uh, what uh, the respective roles uh, of of um, economic versus culture is. Now, as these arrows here indicate, um, you know there are lots of different sort of um, manners in which uh, these fundamental drivers, economics versus culture can drive these outcomes. And since my focus is uh, on globalization, uh, essentially as a driver of economic dislocation, um, I wanna um, emphasize um, the specific arrows. And I want to emphasize sort of the, the different channels through which uh, globalization shocks, working through its labor market effects, working through its economic dislocation effects, um, can uh, uh, work itself um, through the political system. And what I've highlighted here are four different channels. Now, I think the empirical literature, and I'll mention a few uh, uh, papers or, or books um, uh, in a second, but the empirical literature only now, I think, is beginning to unlock uh, or, or, or unpack uh, these different causal channels. Um, and I think for the most part, what the empirical literature um, has, um, has focused on uh, is a kind of a reduced form relationship between either directly from globalization or you know, sort of some labor market um, uh, dualism or um, economic insecurity that in terms of how it shapes individuals' preferences for voting, for example, for right-wing populist parties. So this is channel A. Uh, so that's the most direct way in which globalization shocks can, you know, through its labor market effects, for reasons that I've already discussed, might, might shape individual policy preference for the type of uh, candidates they, they could vote for. Uh, but I want to emphasize, I think, two other indirect channels, which in, in ways, in some ways, I find more interesting and increasingly the empirical li literature is highlighting, which is uh, channels B and D here. Okay, channel B is where, in fact, um, globalization and economic dislocation works 
through its effects on cultural divides, on aggravating cultural divides, making certain social cultural ident identity issues much more salient than otherwise. So what might look like actually um, a sort of a, a culture-based explanation, if you try to unpack it, um, often behind it, you're going to find that there are economic shocks, uh, uh, labor market dislocation that's driving it. And the causal argument here and B is very, is, is, is very straightforward that communities that feel that they're being left behind, that their economic livelihood, economic security is being undermined are much more likely uh, to begin to express distrust uh, against outsider, against other communities, look for culprits, uh, and are much more likely to be um, uh, uh, to be receptive to arguments uh, that point to whether it is racial mi um, um, uh, minorities or uh, ethnic or racial, ethnic or religious outsiders as being essentially uh, the culprit. And I would maintain that if you look at some of the key books or articles that emphasize in the US or sometimes in the European context, the predominance of culture uh, as an explanation for the rise of right-wing populism, I would say that um, even those books um, uh, ultimately um, uh, uh, make an argument that the recent increase uh, in these cultural resentments are linked to fundamental underlying economic trends, whether it's deindustrialization, whether it's globalization shocks, rising inequality, um, and, so, and, and so forth. And, and some, um, some other recent papers uh, have actually looked specifically at how either economic dualism or globalization shock actually works in shaping individual preferences essentially through this channel B. That is by essentially uh, um, increasing distrust uh, against outsider immigrants, um, uh, racial or, or, or cultural minorities. Um, now, so that's one channel which I think is increasingly we're learning that that I would say is ultimately sort of globalization is working itself through the cultural channel, sort of indirectly. The second one that I want to um, highlight, which I think is very interesting, works sort of more on the supply side. And I think, and, and the channel D is essentially how underlying economic shocks are uh, pushing political movements, political parties uh, to render cultural, racial identity issues much more salient uh, in their programs, in their approach to reaching out to voters. Now, this argument in the US context has been made most powerfully uh, and, and vividly in the recent book by um, Hacker and Pearson uh, um, called Let Them Eat Tweets. Um, and essentially the argument uh, is the following that the Republican party uh, has been faced uh, with a, the following challenge. As a result of rising inequality since the 1970s, on economic grounds, the median voter in the United States has moved further and further away from the kinds of policies that the Republican Party actually favors, whether it's deregulation, whether it's free trade traditionally, uh, whether it's low taxes, those are the kinds of issues that the median voter favors less and less as a result of a variety of shocks, but uh, that, that all reveal themselves in the form of inequality, just as in the sort of the, the standard median voter theorem would suggest, 
at the median voter in the United States as a result of rising inequality, actually on economic grounds would like more redistribution, would like higher taxes on the rich, would like more regulation. Uh, and, and, and so the, the, on economic grounds, therefore, the Republican Party uh, has become sidelined and the response that strategically um, that it has adopted is to appeal to voters on cultural, on sort of on hidden racial, um, 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 uh, um, uh, you know, sort of um, themes uh, in a way that essentially by essentially using a culture, a, a, a sort of um, racial uh, an identity kind of, of uh, coded words and, um, uh, um, and, and, and terminology uh, to appeal to a base uh, on the basis of, of, of these kinds of, of non-economic motives. Um, so this is essentially Channel D um, in a paper uh, with Sharon Mukand. We also sort of lay out a, a kind of a theory of, of, of how this, this might work, how in fact the causation goes from rising inequality to parties of the right uh, adopting more identity or cultural or racial resentment based strategies. Okay, so once again, it's a very different kind of a story than uh, the reduced form argument um, that is that is here. A. So, um, you know, I want to, at this point, um, uh, move sort of the implication into the sort of the normative or policy implications of this, which, you know, even if I have not convinced you that, and I don't intend to convince you that economic dislocation or globalization shocks are the only thing that's driving the rise of the far right um, or, uh, um, or, or nativist populism, that at least that there is enough evidence that through these various channels, uh, globalization and economic dislocation, economic insecurity have played a quantitatively significant role in explaining uh, you know, the, the recent electoral trends in, in the United States um, and, uh, and, and Europe. So the, the question is, is how do we address this? I think you know, how we address it would have to go through essentially um, um, policies or strategies that are going to be uh, addressing what I think is the fundamental labor market uh, challenge of our day, um, that's uh, labor market polarization. Um, labor market polarization refers to um, recent trend that essentially if we look at uh, around sort of all the advanced countries from the United States to the European countries, that there is a common trend that in terms of employment and in terms of wages, that the middle of the distribution is essentially collapsing. Uh, so there is no shortage of jobs at the very bottom and wages there are actually low, but uh, not necessarily declining. Uh, similarly, people at the very top are doing very well. And the people who are actually being adversely affected are those in the middle. Um, and, and so those that's reflected in sort of the, the local regional effects of the industrialization, um, the various trade shocks, China uh, trade shocks, um, the consequences of automation uh, and robots and, and sort of the various uh, skill bias and technology bias um, 
tapped to by uh, technological change, which has been common in these countries. So globalization is not the only thing uh, that is driving the specter, uh, technological change and uh, policies, the whole policy framework uh, behind deregulation and decline of labor unions, the gig economy, all of that are also part of this. But I think this is the fundamental uh, challenge that, that, that needs to be, to be addressed. Um, and, and the question is, is how, how do we do this? Um, and to give you my perspective, I want to uh, contrast it uh, with our, um, with our uh, conventional um, welfare state arrangements. And so because I want to sort of make clear, I, 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 I tell you where I think our welfare state arrangements are inadequate for this uh, problem and in which direction they need to be augmented. So when we think about uh, policies in particular, uh, and particular policies uh, that, that deal with inequality, insecurity, and, and, and propping up the middle class, um, I think I find it helpful to think in terms of you know, this matrix, and this matrix will help me um, locate my preferred policies vis-a-vis -vis our traditional welfare state arrangements. So we can ask two kinds of questions on from what on the, in terms of uh, policies. One question is at what stage, where exactly are we intervening? Where does policy uh, intervene in the economy? Um, and there we can dis, you know, distang, uh, distinguish between three stages, sort of pre-production, production, post-production. Post -production. So pre-production refers to uh, essentially, you know, the kinds of skills and endowments and connections and networks that uh, individuals bring uh, to markets uh, before employment and before investment, before production decisions are made. Production stage relates to um, essentially precisely the terms of employment, production, innovation, investment, and so forth. And post-production is largely sort of the redistribution that might take place um, after uh, investment, production, employment, innovation decisions have already been made. The second question is sort of, what stage, what, what, where in the income distribution are we actually um, targeting our, our interventions? Uh, we could be targeting poverty, that is um, um, addressing uh, incomes at the very bottom. Uh, we could be wor worried about high incomes, top incomes, and therefore we could be targeting the very wealthy, the very, very rich, or we could be targeting the middle class, right? And in Contemporary economies, um, essentially, we have policies of all kinds uh, that you can fill this three by three matrix, okay? Um, so for example, our policies with respect to primary education, access to health and so forth, or if, for example, universal basic insurance, basic income, which, you know, is a potential policy would essentially uh, be in, in, this, uh, in this cell. So wealth taxes would be in this cell, which is post-production and is you know, directly affecting um, um, uh, incomes at the very top. Now, I don't plan to go through each one of these cells, but I wanna say that essentially our, our welfare state arrangements are largely based uh, on this, uh, on, on focusing on the one hand on investment in education and training um, and provision of health, and on, on the other, on a kind of a, a, a tax and transfer system uh, that essentially redistributes income after the fact. Uh, so the idea is under with the welfare state um, is that 
that what you need to do uh, is to provide households, individuals with the appropriate endowments of education, health, and so forth. And then you need basically redistribution and social insurance to take care of those who might fall through the cracks. Um, now, the, 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 the problem uh, in the context that, that we, our economies face today, is I think the problem uh, is that sort of these traditional welfare state model presumes that, that these good or middle-class jobs are going to be available to all uh, once we provide the basic fundamentals of edu adequate education. Right? So the welfare state will focus on social spending on education, pensions, social insurance against idiosyncratic risks, uh, but essentially is not directly concerned uh, with the supply of good jobs, with the question of where will the good jobs actually come from, the idea being that if people do have these endowments um, and that, you know, that the good jobs will be there for them, uh, and then you know, we can take care of those people who fall through the cracks um, uh, through uh, post-production. Um, social insurance policies like unemployment insurance. But today I think increasingly it is understood uh, that uh, the labor market polarization, this kind of, that, that give rise to inequality and insecurity uh, is much more of a structural problem that exhibits itself uh, in, the, in a shortage uh, of um, good middle-class jobs. And that's sort of driven by the secular, secular trends of technology, globalization, and so forth. And so when technology and globalization hollow out the middle of the employment distribution, then we have a structural problem uh, that's going to exhibit itself in the form of permanent bad jobs and permanently depressed regional uh, labor markets. And that's going to need a very different um, strategy that tackles good job creation or the supply of good jobs directly. Um, and that's where I think our traditional welfare state policies are inadequate. So going back uh, to this matrix, uh, what we need in particular, I would argue, are, is sort of filling in uh, this middle cell uh, where we need a sort of policies that are targeting the middle of the employment distribution, uh, propping up the middle class, which has been eroded in a lot of countries, most significantly in the United States, uh, through good jobs policies that increase uh, the supply of, 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 of good jobs. Now, what does that mean in practice? Um, I'm going to just you know, leave you with uh, four different strands of policies. Um, now, I have one slide on each one of these policies, but I think probably in the interest of time, I'm not going to go uh, through those slides. Instead, I'm just going to sort of very briefly describe what these are. Uh, first is you know, what I, I call a kind of active labor market policies. Now, active labor market policies are already those that are geared towards, um, you, know, um, in, you know, providing the education and the training and the skills that labor that that uh, workers need uh, to access jobs. And I think we need, a, you know, sort of significantly strengthen uh, those policies in a way that are linked much more directly with, with employers. Um, and what I mean here uh, is that uh, there is evidence actually pr primarily from the United States from a number of small scale programs, so-called sectoral training programs, which have been very successful, where uh, um, employers, where agencies providing these services are, have direct link to employers, figure out what employers need 
um, and, and essentially provide the kinds of skills and training and the variety of wraparound services uh, to potential employees in ways that are much more directly targeted to employers' needs. The point is not simply to uh, ensure that employers' demands or needs are reflected in the kind of training that is provided. It's also to create an ongoing relationship with the employers in ways that actually uh, um, can eventually also shape uh, the employment and human resources practices of these firms. Uh, so distinct from traditional training, uh, these programs also aim to shape uh, the kinds of employment policies uh, that, that firms uh, engage in. Uh, I think that's um, a kind of, there's, there's a proof of concept here that has been tried at small scale, has been very successful. I think it's the kind of thing that I would like to see existing labor market programs go uh, much more in that direction of. Um, the second thing is really about the first policies, although they're connected with employers, I mean, there is, it's, it's heavily worker-centered. The second it has to be very much firm-centered because if we're going to create good jobs, we need good firms um, because it's only good firms that can provide good jobs. So we need to ensure that we have policies in place um, that um, are, are able to increase the productivity in a way that can generate employment of smaller and medium-sized firms. And that's going to require changing our industrial and regional policies away from tax and other kinds of subsidies, which are very ineffective. I mean, they work, but they're very cost ineffective uh, to much more of a provision of customized business services that are much more contextual, much more linked to the needs of particular firms. And you'll see the parallel uh, with the first item, uh, which is that kind of a, a, an ongoing iterative collaborative arrangement with firms uh, that is targeted uh, at their needs, whether that kind could, can be investment in new technologies, whether it's business advice, uh, whether it's uh, particular types of infrastructure that they might need uh, in a particular environment. Uh, but those are sort of essentially firm-centered policies that are targeting uh, productivity, increasing investments uh, in return for soft conditionality um, of, um, uh, in, uh, for creating uh, good quality jobs. Third, in a way, probably the most challenging is I think we need to um, change our approach to innovation. Um, it, you know, technology has a direction and I think um, we understand that when we promote, let's say, green technologies or we promote defense-related military technologies, but public policy has remained completely agnostic with respect to the uh, labor market implications of technology, and I think that has to change. I think the notion that, you know, that we our labor has to adjust to uh, the, tech, you know, the, the skills and needs of technology has to be only half of the story. The other half of the story has to be that the type of innovation, the type of you know, technologies that we promote and subsidize uh, and invest in should also um, you know, take into account the skills characteristics and the needs uh, of our existing labor force. So I think the adjustment has to work from both sides. And right now, all of the narrative is, is uh, focusing on the first, that the labor force our employment, our workers have to adjust to technology. We don't have a, tech, a, 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 um, a, a discussion, certainly another policy discussion about how tech, technology innovation policies should adjust 
to the needs of our existing labor force. And I think that will require a range of things from considering how we're, our tax system is uh, promoting um, automation, uh, how our investment in different types of AI might have very different implications for labor and, and promoting uh, AI that augments uh, the skills of less or medium uh, educated workers as opposed to replacing them. Uh, this is more open-ended and we have less evidence of what might work here, but I think it's for the future is a very uh, important area. Finally, I return back to globalization. I mean, in the remedies, uh, in the kinds of policies I've talked about, you will have noticed that actually I haven't said anything about globalization or trade policy per se. And that's because I believe that the issue is really taking care of our domestic economies and ensuring that we can address labor market polarization. And the role of our international economic policies is to ensure that what we're doing at home uh, to fix these labor market problems are not undermined uh, through uh, trade and, 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 and capital flows. And so I think uh, what we need to think about in terms of our trade and capital uh, market policies uh, is not protectionism in the sense of simply providing protection for domestic production, is to protect the good policies, the good jobs policies that we put in place uh, to ensure that, for example, um, you know, social dumping does not undermine our, you know, sort of labor market or, 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 or social standards to ensure uh, that the free flow of capital and mobility of corporations across borders doesn't undermine our tax base. Uh, so it's really to ensure that our good policies are not being undermined through global competition and the global economy. So uh, I think those arrangements that to provide more autonomy for domestic policymakers will work only to the extent that we have a good domestic strategy that's in place to begin with. Um, and, and that's, I think, that's the sense in which our global economic policies are, are and have to be an adjunct uh, to our domestic uh, economic strategies. So um, I'm happy to talk about some of these elements uh, some more, but uh, I think I've taken uh, a little bit more than my 30 minutes, so um, I'll just I'll just stop at this point. Thank you, uh, Danny. Thank you so much. That is a terrific presentation, and I can see already that it has sparked a lot of interest because the questions are coming in. It's fast and furious. Um, but before we get to members of the audience, um, I, I want to turn this over to. Um, to Sarah, uh, because you've got a very interesting take, it seems to me, on the links between, you know, globalization and and and, and populism um, in Western democracies or in in, in OECD countries, and um, and Sarah, this is kind of in your wheelhouse, <laughs> and so or it overlaps with a lot of a lot of work that you've done um, on on populism, and I'm. It'd be great. I know you've had to take this kind of on the fly, but I would be. It would be wonderful if you can give us your reactions to the model and and some of the kind of core arguments here to get us started. Uh, of course, I mean it's a great pleasure. It's a very wide-ranging uh, talk and and incredibly impressive. It's always a, a pleasure to to listen to Danny and to to read his work. Uh, and I think I mean of course this. This talk tackles a very important and very timely question about, you know, the link between globalization and populism. 
And I think really what Danny, what, what you've done in this talk and also in some of your written work is that you offer, I think, a very impressively comprehensive answer that does uh, a few things that I haven't seen elsewhere in terms of trying to answer this very difficult question. And one is that you very successfully, I think, move beyond this culture versus uh, economics debate, or oh, it has to be this or the other, and really try to integrate them and come up with arguments for how they work together. You also integrate both demand and supply, I think, in a very important way, looking at not only just it all comes from preference shocks, but also how parties themselves can channel that supply. This is something as um, as Peter was mentioning that I've looked at myself, that parties really are important agents in that. And then, of course, you do something incredibly bold, which is you also offer solutions to how we can uh, solve the problems. Uh, uh, and that's something that often social scientists uh, shy away from. So, so I, I, I find this very compelling, um, the argument, and, and very impressive uh, how comprehensive it is. Now, um, I do want to sort of ask you three questions, I think that might highlight a bit um, more of trying to understand how your model and argument works and also which will lead to us to think about, uh, critically about the solutions that you offer. And, and the, the three questions about the nature of populism, uh, about the role of agency of parties and others, and then the primacy that I still think you do give to, to economic explanations and economic shocks. So let me start. The sort of obvious question is about what is populism? And I noticed that you do start out with, uh, you know, the populist uh, movement in the United States. As you rightly said, they were self-consciously populist. But of course, the, many of the parties and politicians that we call populist today are not uh, self-consciously populist in the sense they don't call themselves. So it's not like a so social democratic party family or Christian democratic par party family where they are part of a sort of uh, international union of social democrats and they or party family and they this is what they're proud of being called. You know, it's something, a label that is used and often not used in the most positive way that we place on them. Yeah, And so I think uh, not to be sort of too boringly social scientific, but I think defining that label is quite important in terms of how we link globalization with it. And that it's not a settled matter in the literature. So kind of the most standard definition of populism is of, when we talk about parties or politicians is of course one where you have society divided in these two antagonistic groups, this uh, corrupt elite versus this pure people. And that really populism give primacy to the general will, the will of the people. But you will know, of course, that there's other definitions that put more emphasis on the illiberalism that's inherent in a populist rhetoric or ideology. Others, again, also add a sort of nativist element, which you did in parts of your talk. And the literature that you refer to in your talk uses sort of different sets of dependent variables. Some focus on the radical right, some focus on the Republican Party, some focus on, again, and I it matters a bit in terms of the linkages uh, that we made, because it, is it a talk really about the radical right? Is that what you're interested in? Or is it about populism as this sort of, uh, and I think it matters also when we come to the solution. So it's something that I would be curious um, about your take on, because there's been a lot of 
people often like, you know, to make parallels between the country you are in uh, in the United States and the country I'm in, Denmark, and then Trump, was, of course, in terms of his rhetoric, very populist, I think it, with most definitions. But is the Republican Party a populist party? Is that what it has always been or has become? Presumably not has always been, but what was the transformation? Or is it Trump himself? What about the United Kingdom? A referendum is inherently a very populist tool because it favors the general will. But does that mean that the Conservative Party governing the United Kingdom is a populist party? You know, so I think we need to, there's often a danger in the literature on, on populism that we get this kind of conceptual slippage where we sort of like to call all the things and often the things, you know, we, you know, the liberal metropolitan elite of scholars don't like, oh, it must be a bit populist. And that's often why, you know, is the Linke or Syriza or Podemos, are they not also populist parties using populist rhetoric? And can we use the same set of explanations to, to uh, account for why they're popular? So that's my first sort of more conceptual question. So the second is that even though I really like how you have supply in there and the role of parties, you still seem to treat the agency of parties in a rather reactive way to these globalization shocks. So you talked in your talk about, and you've also written about how parties can respond to globalization shocks by mobilizing certain issues and identity politics or xenophobia and so on. But I was wondering what you see of the role of more endogenous change due to party agency. So I'm sort of personally quite interested in the role of challenger parties in, in shaping the salience of issues, even when there is no shock. Um, so you can, in, in a European context, we've seen how issues of Euroscepticism, for example, have been linked quite successfully by challenger parties to anti-immigration. So this sort of anti-globalization movement has been linked to issues around anti-immigration in a way that has then become something that's very salient to voters. But not necessarily in response to a very particular economic event, but rather as a way of shifting what voters care about at the ballot box through the agency of parties. So, so I wondered, you know, how much is it really, it always has to have this foundation in these economic shocks in your model and how much is there an independent role of, of parties? And, and that's also because these structuralist approaches, I mean, one thing um, I looked at empirically when I tracked the rise of challenger parties in Europe was this immense difference in when these parties become successful. And I always thought if you have a very simple sort of structuralist model, then, and you have very similar shock to a continent like Europe, you would expect the rise of these parties to happen a bit at the same time. Now, you don't have a very simple structuralist model, so I'm not sort of sort of putting that charge against you, but, but it does make me think, you know, if there's a greater role for agency when you do think about why uh, why we have these very different timings in terms of when these parties become popular. So my uh, the country I was born in and raised in is Denmark. I'm not sort of expecting you to know a lot about Denmark, but of course they had the rise of, of the first very successful populist parties in the early 70s. 
Of course, I also know there was an economic shock in the early 70s, but this was before many people are talking about the rise of populism. And they were sort of very pure in the populism and later on also used to sort of anti-immigration to become successful. Then we have sort of in, in, in Norway, it happened a bit later, and in Sweden, of course, even later. And, and these are three economies that are, uh, are rather similar, but had a very different history of populism. But there are also three countries, and, and generally we can look at Northwest Europe, where far-right populist parties have been popular. Now, if I go back to one of your first slides about hyper-globalization and how it impacts, you know, the size of the pie, how you share it, how the pie is distributed, and the politics, then I think of Scandinavia, and I think high wealth and welfare, low inequality, and high trust in political institutions. And also, may I add, and again, I'm not a political economist, but I would think good middle class jobs. Yet we have had very successful populist parties, especially in Norway and Denmark, and now also in Sweden with the Sweden Democrats. So how do we account for that? If even countries like the Scandinavians, if there's such a large share of the population who, who are attracted to and vote for consistently over decades these parties, you know, how does that go with the economic solution? So let me, that's my final question then. And that's about that I still think and uh, that there is this primacy given to economic considerations and they, that might be uh, fair enough, but I just, you, you know, you have culture in there, but it's still kind of secondary that culture is shaped by economic dislocation that again is shaped by globalization shocks. But don't we also have shocks, cultural shocks, so to speak, or shocks that may shift the saliency of identity concerns? Terrorist attack is one thing that in the political science literature, and I'm sure economists also use it as a sort of nice exogenous shock, uh, it has been shown to really shift the saliency of, of these kind of identity cultural concerns. So that's not an economic shock. Yeah, that's a, a sort of culture. I'm not always I, sure I love the term culture because it can encompass so many things, but, but, but so we're on the same page. All these inflows of, of immigration from, you know, the Mediterranean, again, that led to a rise in the saliency of these issues. So, you know, should we assume that culture always, uh, that economics always takes primacy, that it's that those structural economic changes that drives it? And then how does that matter in terms of your final and very important and interesting, the sort of cure, the solutions that you offer? Because is it really predicated on the fact that this is about this economic dislocation that comes first in the causal chain? I mean, you know the argument by, by your colleague Pippa Norris, and who is like, oh, it's all culture. Yeah. Now, one of the things he says is, oh, the reason people disagree with me is because they feel uncomfortable because if it's culture, then they can't fix it. Now, again, I think, I think you present a more nuanced model, but it is, a, it is a challenge to say, well, if it's not always the primacy of economics, can these good middle-class jobs solve it in the way that, that you might think? So, so I'll leave it there in terms of uh, the solution part or your normative part of your argument that, you know, what is this link between the diagnosis and the cure? But thank you for, for a very inspiring and important talk. Well, that's a great set of comments, um, um, Sarah. Uh, Danny, I'm thinking, why don't I give you um, a moment here to 
respond, especially, well, you can pick and choose and you can, I'll give you time also at the end, we're closing, you could pick it up. It'll give me a chance to go through. There are now 38 questions in the queue. So you got a lot of folks that have questions for you and for Sarah. Go ahead. Let me give you a take yeah, a sorry, I mean, These are, these are um, I, you know, I wish we had two hours to, to discuss this and I, there's no way I can do justice, but I think you're raising all the all the important um, questions. Um, so let me just, you know, signal a few a few answers. I, I think you're right that I did not define populism, and I think you can, I think you can you can hear what I've talked about largely as an attempt to explain the rise of the radical right um, and uh, an economic strategy to. Um, uh, to uh, you know, to prevent um, a further um, a movement in that direction. Now, I'll, I'll come back to sort of this potential tension if the rise of the radical right is much more deeply cultural as opposed to economic. Then, is there a disjuncture between the remedy and and the cause? But I mean, I think yes, it, it sort of populism. I would associate with this kind of um, this this um, rhetoric that divides uh, the people versus the corrupt elite. Uh, I would go further and say that um, that there are, um, uh, you know, loosely speaking, two brands of uh, populism, a, a, West, um, a left wing populism and a right wing populism. And to me, I think the puzzle has been why um, given the primacy, I think, and I'll come back to it, so many of the economic shocks that I think drive this, why has the the the, uh, you know, the rise at least early on was focused so much more on the on the right wing. Of course, we had maybe Syriza, you know, we put them also, but I mean, most of the parties that you mentioned and the and the, certainly the Scandinavian parties are also are, 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 you know, parties of the radical right and in the United States, of course, you know, Yes, in recent years, and certainly I think the trends before Trump are there, but I think, um, you know, the Republicans have become the, the party of the radical right. So that's effectively what I was trying to, uh, to, to, to explain. And I do think the radical right is much more dangerous uh, than the left-wing populism, because for the most part, left-wing populism need not be authoritarian in the way that the radical right almost inherently is. Uh, so I think I, I view radical right much more of a danger to fundamentally democracy. So that's why, you know, there, there are brands of left-wing populism that would not concern me at all. And the kind of populism that we associate with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren does not concern me at all. There's a very good argument the Democratic Party should have gone in that direction. And, and obviously, you know, uh, Biden, even though he's nominally a centrist, has moved much more towards um, the left uh, in response to um, uh, you know the the you know the 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 push from uh, the progressives, uh, which who in many way are representative of the left wing populism in the United States. And there we're coming to the question of uh, of the agency of the party. Our parties are defining their identities. I think there's an interesting phenomenon as to why also on the supply side, parties of the far right uh, were much quicker at taking advantage um, of uh, voter anxiety and, and these shocks, because you would have said that, you know, if the shocks are economic, you know, you would have thought an economic narrative about what's going wrong and it would have benefited parties of the, of the left. But in many ways, you know, I think, so that's a puzzle. I don't have an answer. And I think it's changing as we see now with the Democratic Party. I think with some lag, 
uh, I think parties of the central left. We're also seeing to some extent the Labour Party in, in the United States. I'm not sure about the Social Democrats. But I think part of the story is that the Social Democrats in Europe and uh, the Democratic Party in the United States were hamstrung by the for the fact that they had ideologically been captured by the very same narratives that have pushed for hyper-globalization. After all, it was in many ways much more the Democrats, the Clinton Democrats in the United States, the you know Tony Blairs in in in, in the UK and and you know uh, Schroeder in Germany and and. Um, and, and the French socialists who were pushing for capital mobility uh, in, 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 and financial market integration in, in the European Union and so forth. So they were spearheading the very processes, which I think, and I think so it's, it's taken a while uh, for the center left to dissociate itself from a kind of an intellectual framework um, that uh, is very much, I think, at the root of the backlash. And I think uh, the right did not have to the same extent, I think. And, and because I think there's always been a residue of these sort of cultural identity-based sort of politics, um, you know, that, that there was a base for the center right from which to rise. So I think the reason that as, a, as an underlying cause, I put less emphasis on culture, I'll put it very crudely, is I'll say that culture is something that moves very slowly. Now, of course, you know, you mentioned a few shocks that might make them salient. But if you go, for example, to the to Norris Inglehart book, right, it's all about the division between the social conservative and social liberals. It's driven by sort of secular trends in a whole variety of areas. And that that doesn't change nearly rapidly to, to explain why we have this spike uh, in, the, in the last decade uh, in, in, in right-wing or radical, uh, radical right. And that's what I was sort of referring to when I said that you scratch the surface of their arguments. And in fact, I think Pippa in her book is you know, very explicit about that, that much of this is driven in turn, has been aggravated, I should say, uh, by inequality and uh, the various dislocations that the globalization, technological change. And then there is a kind of a cycle. I think that's also has been highlighted by Will Wilkinson in the United States, where sort of these cultural you know, divisions between either, you, know, you want to call it between the social conservative versus social liberals, or if you want to put it on spatial or regional terms between metropolitan uh, successful globally integrated metropolitan areas and smaller towns or rural areas, uh, that sort of gets aggravated um, as the very differ differential economic impacts play out uh, aggravate these cultural differences in turn, sort of there's a process of, you know, people who migrate are those who have the, the values that are more in line with sort of, you know, taking part in these new labor market opportunities and those who don't get reinforced in their own sort of cultural uh, frameworks. Um, so, uh, you know, so, but uh, but fundamentally, I, and I'd say that, you know, that, uh, you know, a, a, a constant cannot explain a change. And if we're trying to explain the rise of populism, I think where we had the big change are changes in the economic environment, very measurable direct changes in, in, in labor markets and inequality and economic insecurity and globalization shocks that you know, we don't have the same kinds of things um, uh, with respect to, uh, to, to culture. Um, and, I think you mentioned the, the Scandinavian cases. I think that's very interesting. But some of the evidence I've seen there, I mean, there's one very good paper on Sweden. So I don't know about Denmark and Norway that much, but you know, the paper by Dalbo and, and co-authors is really precisely about sort of 
the increased utilization of labor markets in Sweden, uh, that creation of insider-outsider because of labor market deregulation. Yes, it's still a very equal society. And when I went to Sweden to talk about good jobs, they looked at me and said, what are you talking about? Um, and yet the fact, of course, is that there are a lot of immigrants and, you know, sort of, and, and, and people who are, you know, tremendously, you know, lacking those kinds of opportunities. Um, and that's going to be an important divide. And laid on top of this sort of insider-outsider, uh, you know, development of these dualistic labor markets because of, you know, um, relaxation of the, some, some of the labor market, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, restrictions that existed. And what that paper does particularly is, is show precisely how uh, where these labor market effects were stronger is precisely where um, Sweden Democrats uh, had a better showing. Um, and partly that it's, it, it, it works through my channel B, through, you know, sort of attitudes towards immigrants, cultural attitudes and resentments and so forth. So even in, in Sweden, again, sort of if you want to explain the rise, the difference, I think, you know, that, that the economic uh, explanations seem to be doing um, uh, some work there. Um, let me just say just a word about, um, so uh, on, on primacy, I, I think I, I mentioned why I put emphasis on the primacy of, of economics. And, and, you know, sort of, you know, on the one hand, you may say I'm an, eco I'm an economist. And even when, you know, we're responsible for bad things, we want to say it's economists, you know, <laughs> it's, it's uh, economics is a truth. On the other hand, I'm sort of also an optimist, which, you know, sort of say that we can actually, you know, do something about these things. And you're right. Um, you know, I can think about what to do about things like inequality and economic insecurity. I know much less how to do about those other things, uh, which I think in the United States, you know, racial resentment, I would never minimize the importance of race as a factor in politics. But again, if we're trying to understand what has happened in the last two, you know, two or three decades, you know, again, it's hard to, uh, to explain why, you know, constant would cause such a change unless, you know, there were these economic factors that, that really make those issues much more salient and, and, and the Republican Party explicitly chose the strategy. Uh, but yes, and I also believe in, in agency of, of these parties. I do believe that Democrats had a choice, that they were delayed in responding to these, which is why the Republicans made such gains, as indeed in Europe, why the radical right has made some gains. Um, but I, I do think that the, you know, the social Democrats in Europe and the Democrats in um, in 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 uh, in the United States, will have to uh, position themselves much better. So, I have a lot of questions also, but I'm going to hold my questions because we got we have a ton in the queue. I just want to say we've got you know I think I don't know what the numbers are right now. We were close to 600 people on the platform. We have folks from Romania, Belgium, India, France, Argentina, Australia, Portugal, Brazil, Turkey, Bulgaria. Bangladesh, the U.S., and even the U.K. So, I mean, it's really, really impressive. Look, I'm going to bundle three questions here. Um, uh, one, in a sense, uh, Danny, is kind of the flip side of, um, of the story here. It's from uh, Bindu Vangatesh, who is uh, an LSE alum. Isn't the fact that globalization has created a new middle class in Asia relevant to the discussion. Without globalization, we wouldn't have had an emerging middle class in Asia. So, I mean, I think this is the elephant graph. And, and um, a second question from Sue Sheriff uh, from Fairbanks, Alaska. 
um, like I said, we cover a lot of terrain here. So how do you distinguish hyper-globalization from globalization? You are well known for drawing that distinction. That's an editorial comment. Is hyper-globalization not just the end stage of the globalization process, or is it something fundamentally different? And one last point from Anthony um, uh, Valion, uh, which Sarah, it would be great to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, an LSE alum uh, based in London. So how do you see the role of multilateral institutions like the UN, like the EU, in driving this process and also in terms of the solutions, Danny, in terms of good jobs policies. I, I think there's something in this question about that it, it seems to tap something that was not, you know, does not figure into the account that much. Um, and that's the loss of sovereignty or the sense that sovereignty is being being lost, which seems to be a driver. And it, it's hard to just put that under the cultural, um, it seems to me, umbrella. But it has properties that are similar to what I think um, Sarah mentioned with, with respect to like a security shock, like terrorism. It's something different. And so three different questions. Um, but, you know, um, it, it'd be great to get both of your thoughts. Maybe, Danny, why don't you start with with Bindu's question about the emerging middle class and then hyper-globalization. Uh, yeah, you know, I think um, the, the, the manner in which countries chose to globalize um, has a lot to do with whether uh, they prospered as a result and um, they were able to contribute to the rise of a global middle class. Now, um, let me give you, the, you know, when we think about sort of, you know, and I think the, the question was referring to Asia in particular, yes. but of course, you know, Asia is not the only part of the world which uh, globalized and, and very rapidly. And it's absolutely right that, uh, you know, China um, uh, since the 80s and then um, uh, India a little bit later actually um, uh, um, benefited significantly. Uh, but what's striking, uh, particularly in, in China's experience with globalization, how it, um, it, it, uh, it combined um, the opportunities that global markets presented with a very concerted and active domestic strategy of diversification. So if, if you go of, of industrial policies, if you will, if you go back to sort of one, one of my, first, my three tensions, uh, the tension between Smith, uh, Adam Smith, and Friedrich List, uh, you know, they basically, you know, essentially put those into balance with each other, um, and uh, and 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 I think the reason that uh, China benefited so much from globalization is precisely because it had a domestic investment and growth strategy. So I remember, you know, one uh, Chinese policymaker. Uh, telling me that China's globalization strategy was like, you know, opening up a screen, uh, you know, but putting a mosquito net uh, on it so that, you know, you get all the fresh air from the world economy, but you keep the dangerous elements out. And what that meant, of course, is the controls on capital flows, uh, the controls on foreign investment, the control on the currency and the exchange rate, uh, the extensive industrial policy. So it was very clear. Now, to see what the alternative may have been turned to a different part of the world, 
um, another developing country, which actually um, tried very hard to globalize, Mexico. Uh, you know, in fact, Mexico had so many advantages that China lacked. It was just, you know, so on the southern border of the United States, um, uh, had a, you know, one of the first deep integration trade agreements with NAFTA uh, with the United States, had all the benefits and had a leadership uh, that was absolutely intent um, uh, from the late 80s on uh, to globalize, uh, to open up to trade and foreign investment. And the Mexican economic performance since then has been a disaster. Nobody talks about Mexico having been contributed to a global middle class, or in fact, having created much of a middle class domestically, where in fact, regional inequality has, has, um, uh, has increased significantly after NAFTA. Uh, in, um, so it has been a very kind of, a, you know, the North and, you know, the, you know, the, the global integrated corporations have done very well, but large parts of the economy have not done very well. So I think, you know, the question about sort of how we think about globalization is it really depends once again, sort of what you're doing domestically, whether you're positioning yourself to take advantage of it. And China and many other Asian countries had the right strategy. Uh, many Latin American countries, for example, Mexico did not. Uh, that goes to my point about hyper-globalization or the distinction between hyper-globalization and globalization. So I think the key distinction I would make is when hyper-globalization entails uh, not simply reducing barriers to trade and investment at the border, but also uh, taking on significant restrictions on what your domestic institutional and policy arrangement, domestic regulatory tax, macroeconomic policies might be. Because you start to look to, to think about your tax regime, your fiscal policy, your domestic uh, regulations as barriers to trade. And you try to then bring them into line with what the global economy requires. So after the 1990s, increasingly move, we moved into hyper-globalization, where in fact our domestic regulatory tax and, and financial arrangements uh, were constrained uh, by the requirement of, of openness and the global economy. So in that sense, which you, Peter, you were talking about sort of loss of national sovereignty, hyper-globalization inher inherently brings loss of national sovereignty. The gold standard, which I mentioned, was exactly another model of hyper-globalization because it restrained what today we would call monetary and fiscal policies, your, your financial policies, on account of the requirement that you had to maintain openness to the flows of gold and other capital and, and a peg to uh, the value of gold. That meant that you weren't simply following free trade and free flow of capital, but your financial, monetary, fiscal policies were constrained. Uh, by, so that's another example of how, you know, of hyper-globalization. I would say that by contrast, the Bretton Woods regime uh, was another model of hyper-globalization, even though it stimulated significant expansion of global trade and long-term investment, because I think the kinds of liberalization it entailed uh, was largely restricted to eliminating quantitative restrictions on trade at the border, uh, reducing import tariffs at the border. But when there was a conflict between what domestic economy required and what the rules of the global economy, governments had tremendous space uh, uh, and autonomy uh, to, to make choices that were going to reflect what the domestic economy and society want. So it was a very different model. Mm. Sarah, some thoughts about the role of multilateral institutions like the EU, uh, just in general as a, a driver of, of populism. 
I mean, you have a book coming out on that, so so you should really be answering that. But I mean, I can say a few words, of course. I mean, populist movement, both in Europe, certainly, but also elsewhere, both on the left and on the right, have, of course, used the opposition to international institutions like the EU, but not only the EU, is very much part of their platform. And this sort of faceless bureaucrats uh, of the international organization, often one promoting, of course, globalization, it has become a sort of easy target that ties in with this idea of this corrupt elite in the sort of populist uh, propaganda. So these things have very much gone hand in hand uh, with the sort of the package of populist parties. And it's interesting in Europe, I mean, we see that that is really what unites the populist right and left is an opposition to the to the European Union, for example. And of course, Trump uh, famously is sort of, uh, has been opposed to international institutions, multilateralism more generally. So that's been part uh, of the package and also part of the cost of the rise of populism has been a, an attack on these institutions. So that's great. So we've got, uh, there's a, a, a number of other questions here that um, there's there's one here. Of course, there's there's actually many questions about Brexit, which is probably doesn't come as a surprise. Um, I'm, I'm going to take this one from Olala Benito, who is uh, an LSE student. And the question is, um, what is your view on Brexit and the way in which economic dislocation may have affected the referendum result. So in a sense, is this just, is this a classic case of Danny? And let's say in terms of your model, is it channel B or channel D that applied? Um, Sarah, you've written a lot about this as well. So it would be good to get your, your thoughts. A second question here um, that comes from um, one of our undergraduates, uh, Matthew Prescott. So, um, and Danny, I think this one is really for you. So um, Thomas Piketty has has previously suggested that re reducing taxes on labor um, and introducing significant wealth taxes, um, you know, that that would be the right combination. And what do you think about this proposal? I mean, I, I think when, you know, when we go back and we look at your grid, this is only one of the options and it doesn't seem to be where you think the sweet spot really is, but I, it would be, Good to hear you on, on this. And another question from an IR student, Vivian Shu, uh, one of our MSC students. What role can multinational corporations play or uh, in, in prioritizing, if any, domestic labor, if they can always find labor with lower wages overseas? So, um, and maybe that's more a question about uh, government responses to uh, uh, MNCs, but but let's start with the Brexit question. I don't know who wants to go first. And I can say a few words before Danny tells us it's all about economics. <laughs> 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 no, uh, I mean of course there have been some papers uh, uh, that shows that first of all there's been an by by economists, uh, political economists that show that uh, that for example these sort of China shock papers that Danny referred to that that. That that sort of the openness and those those regions that were more open that that had an effect and also that austerity increased the UK vote and that led to um, um, led to to more a higher Brexit vote. That said, if we look at this sort of key 
um, predictors of the Brexit vote, both long term and short term. They are much more rooted in a kind of expansion of uh, education and that educational divide and a generational divide and also a sort of rise in anti-immigration attitudes and the salience of that issue that were then linked and that goes back to the to what Danny also talked about in his talk, this agency in way in which you can take these sort of economic dislocation and then channel it as a party and link it uh, with concerns about, in this case, an international institution like the EU and with immigration. And that was done very successfully by the Leave campaign. So if we look at just an analysis of the Brexit vote, it were clearly these kind of concern. There's no clear income divide, for example, in the Brexit vote. It was not that they were uh, neither if we look at aggregate level or individual level. That, of course, doesn't mean you don't have these long-term impacts of economic dislocation that then impacted, like Danny says, on on uh, cultural attitudes. Jenny, do you want to add to that? No, um, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think, um, again, I would make a, a, a limited claim that, that, you know, I, that, that we do have good evidence that uh, economic shocks, whether it's a trade shock, whether it was the effects of austerity, whether it was, you know, effects of the industrialization or local economic decline, that those things were correlated. Uh, with 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 the Brexit vote, uh, but again, you know, if you wanted to explain, you know, how the country voted, um, you know, probably those things would not be quantitatively very significant, except for if you are just looking at changes over time. So, for example, to give a a, a, a if you look at, you know, who votes in the United States for Republicans versus Democrats? So who voted for Trump in 2016? We don't have the data to do this for um, uh, the last election. But, you know, that, I mean, if you wanted to understand, you know, first of all, it would be whoever voted Republican in the previous election, that would be the most powerful predictor. Uh, or, you know, you, you would not find necessarily that there was an income divide between, you know, who voted for Trump versus but if you want to look, for example, if you look, for example, who switched their votes mm -hmm. from uh, having voted for Obama four years earlier and then voted for Trump, then you find that that these local economic variables, uh, you know, start to you know do some work. Uh, so in terms of the switchers, you find that um, you know that that you know economics did play a role, uh, whereas you know. Racial resentment, uh, a measure of racial resentment will always be a, a determinant of, of whether people are voting Republican or not. And that's very powerful. But if you want, if you want to understand why, you know, enough people switched from having voted Dem Democratic in 2008 to having voted uh, um, uh, Republican to Trump in 2016, you know, the, the, the change is correlated with some of, of these economic shocks. Um, um, on, on, on wealth taxes, uh, I think, Peter, you're right. I mean, I, I do think that there is a role for, I mean, certainly in the United States, there's much greater role for progressivity income taxation. There's much greater role for taxing high incomes. Uh, in Europe as well, I think um, that the, the burden of taxation has shifted too much to labor and too away from capital, because again, from globalization, the idea that we couldn't tax mobile capital. But now the policy environment is changing. There is now enough cooperation, enough information exchange among sort of OECD, BEPS, and so forth, that we can now begin to redress the balance 
uh, of taxation to tax capital more and to tax labor less. So that's definitely a direction in which we can go. And I think it's not feasible to do that. Um, but my concern is that if you look at this issue, and that's why I think you were right in Peter in saying that I did not highlight that, um, is if we think that the issue is merely just getting more taxes and more transfers, I think we're missing the point that I think we're not going to be creating more healthy, healthier or more vibrant local societies, local economies where these shocks have had the deepest scars uh, simply by transferring more income to people. I think we'll have to create um, good jobs. We'll have to create um, uh, uh, um, you know, employment opportunities that 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 use people's um, uh, capabilities, and 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 I think that's a big part of creating a, um, a a kind of a healthy society, um, and that's why I think it's going to be has to go beyond simply um, wealth taxes or redressing uh, the you know the tax issue. Can I push you just a little bit on that? Because so one question I have is I I found that that particular slide where you listed, I know it was a summary of the different industry, the different policy options in a sense that are out there, they, that, that could be pursued. They all require a level of cooperation, maybe not all, but they seem to require a level of cooperation between, you know, finance and labor between corporations and in workers and I and which is and so I guess in the American context I'm wondering kind of how I mean you're I know you said you're an optimist by nature so you think or you see ways in which or models that are out there of this happening that can be broadened, expanded, developed? Could you say a word about that? There are a number of questions about wanting something more concrete, I think, to hold on to there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to go back to my slides because yeah, I'll yeah. probably take too much time for that. But, you know, that's, you know, I had one slide talking about um, the, the, these um, sectoral training programs that are very closely linked with employers. And that's a kind of a model um, and, 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 and the best known example of this is something, is a project called Project Quest uh, that operates out of San Antonio in Texas. It's, it was, it's actually not a government project. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it was started by a community um, uh, organization and it's been extremely successful. And then what it does is simply essentially takes workers who are normally very disadvantaged workers um, and, uh, and, and trains them and certifies them, but also provides them with significant amount of what's called wraparound services, which is if these workers need, you know, babysitters at home, they need transportation, they have specific problems. It's very customized and trying to solve these workers' problems. At the same time, they're very closely connected to the local employers, whether it's the health service sector, whereas the IT sector works with them. And, and to to you know to work on their on their labor requirements and the job specifications to refine them and to provide the training through either separate training programs or through local community colleges, which is precisely the kind of training that they want. And in the process, then they build trust with the employers. The employers actually talk to them. Uh, they they share information. Sometimes they actually change their policies in response to what these agencies do. And and so these this model has now been expanded. 
And there are um, a number of half a dozen at least of, of these kinds of operations uh, from Boston to New York to Wisconsin uh, in the different parts of the country. And they've all been rigorously evaluated. They actually um, uh, do produce significant increases in incomes for, for participants. Um, the problem is that you know, they operate, they serve thousands of people instead of serving millions of people. So they're very small scale. And they have not received significant support from either uh, state agencies or from the federal government. So I think that's a, there's a major opportunity there um, of, of, of boosting, uh, kind of in, you know, expanding on a model that's already been demonstrated to work. Right. On the firm side, I mean, there are a lot of actually, you know, evidence. And I think here the best to-go person is actually Tim Bartik of uh, the Upjohn Institute um, in, in the United States, where he's done detailed work showing exactly how local economic development policies uh, that work directly with um, uh, um, local firms uh, to provide them customized manufacturing or other extension services, business advice, uh, you know, local sort of you know, brownfield um, uh, investments and so forth. And, and sort of have those, those things work and they're much more cost effective than simply providing tax incentives, which are very expensive. That is great. I, I really appreciate you kind of drilling down there. I, I, I think that that's a, it's actually a very helpful and optimistic way to wrap up because we've, we've reached the bewitching hour. Ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to Professor Roderick uh, and Professor Holbolt today. Uh, Danny and Sarah, on behalf of the U.S. Center uh, and the LSC and the Wanger Foundation, I want to thank you for um, taking the time to share your timely thoughts about about populism, about the connection with globalism. To everybody out there, stay healthy, stay safe. Take care, and we will see you next time. Happy holidays.